This morning we'll be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Again, good morning and welcome to Christ the King. We are in a study over these few weeks, uh, which will end in February on the last Sunday. Uh, going through Romans 8, uh, we're basing uh, our study. We're using uh, the backdrop of a documentary called 14 Peaks on Ascending the Highest Peaks in the World in Six Months or Less. So if you haven't watched that uh, yet, I encourage you to watch it. Uh, But we're looking at one of the great peaks in the Bible, Romans 8. Um, I have some friends whose goal is to climb every peak in Colorado that's over 14,000 feet. Now, if you know Colorado, some of you are from Colorado, you know there are 54 of them. And one of my friends has done 52 of the 54 Uh, quite an achievement. Um, So what we're after here, though, this morning is to ascend together into the beauty and the power of Romans 8 uh, for ourselves uh, to sense again how God is drawing us up and out and into places where we can look from Romans 8. One commentator calls it the great cathedral in the Bible. So if you think about walking into a great cathedral, how beautiful that could be, majestic could be, there's also this sense of we step on to the peak as we climb through Romans 8 to get to the place where we get to see the glory of Christ revealed to us in ways that we'll celebrate even today. So as we do that, let's pray together again. Um, let's ask the Lord to be with us. And as we do that, let me encourage you to pray for someone near you um, that they can hear the voice of the Good Shepherd this morning. So Jesus, come and help us pray. Now take a few moments to pray for yourself that you'll have ears to hear uh, what Jesus would say to you today. And take a few moments and pray for me that I can hear from the Good Shepherd as we look at this passage today. Jesus, help us to listen. We know one of the best ways we love you is when we listen. And we know that you've ordained uh, this ministry of the word, the preaching of your word, to speak to your people. 
And so would you speak into our the very core? Would you teach us truth in our inmost being that we might sense again this invitation to the depth and the riches of Christ in us, the hope of glory, we pray. Amen. Many of you know the story of Helen Keller. If you haven't watched The uh, Miracle Worker, it's an oldie goldie movie. Um, it's a great story. I have a good friend who loves to talk about this movie and uses it in a lot of his illustrations of his teaching. Some of you know Helen Keller was healthy when she was born. I think at 18 or 19 months, she went blind. She became very difficult as a child uh, because of her blindness, so much so that family members were saying to her mother, uh, she needs to be institutionalized, which way back when, that's where people who had difficult children, you were put in institutions. But her mother did not give up on her. And there was a teacher for her. Uh, the story goes on, and Helen Keller graduated from college, became this famous lecturer, and in some ways is a picture of how somebody's life in the midst of suffering blindness uh, can see and, and a way of living their life that has meaning. Um, Helen Keller said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. Now, some of you know the verse in Proverbs that says, uh, where there is no vision, people perish. Uh, people perish. Where there is no vision, people perish. Listen to Eugene's Peterson's translation of Proverbs 29 18 when he said, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. One of the things that we'll talk about this morning is suffering does not define us, but it does direct us. When we get here to Romans 8, Paul has just already in verse uh, 11, introduce this idea after he says we've been adopted into God's family. We have assurance, we have significance that we belong to him through what Christ has done. Uh, to have the thrill of knowing not only have we been accepted, but we've been adopted through the gospel into a relationship with God himself. But listen to what Paul says in the verse right before we get to verse 12 here where we are today. Where he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then to jump down to verse 17, he says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So, Paul sort of sets the stage for the next question. So it's one thing to move out of, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The banner over us is we are not condemned people. We live in a shame-free zone. We live in a guilt-free uh, zone. Um, uh, I remember I was, as we were singing Christ Alone uh, this morning, I was thinking about some time that we've had in Ireland, particularly in Dublin, uh, Trinity College is there. There's a fabulous fellowship of Irish believers, lads and lassies, who uh, gather together to study God's Word and pursue Christ. But there was a little t-shirt they had that they would wear. It was very small, but it said, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Uh, and that's sort of a summary of Romans 8, no guilt in life, no fear in death. But then we get to this place where Paul says this. He says, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Really, Paul? <laughs> I mean, if we're going to be honest here, I mean, when you read that, how does it resonate with you? Uh, some of you have friends who are suffering. Some of you are suffering. Some of you, the level intensity of suffering is way up there. Uh, it's not like uh, if we said on a scale of 1 to 10, and 10 is the worst. Many of us might say we're 3, 2, 4, but some of you are 8, 9, and maybe even 10. And listen to what God says to us. For I consider, we are to consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory as that is to be revealed in us. Really? <laughs> are you kidding me? How many people do you know when they're really suffering are thinking about the glory which is to be revealed? The hope of heaven. How many people are saying, that's where I'm anchoring who I am? That's what I'm, I'm putting my hope in. You see, the good news of the gospel this morning is not what we have done, what, not what has been done to us, but what has been done for us. Because you see, what Paul is going to open up for us is suffering does not define us. It directs us to the one who has suffered for us. Now, this is huge. It's so easy to miss. I miss it all the time. So let me say it again. It's not what you have done, what's been done to you, but what has been done for you that defines you. And it's not your suffering that defines you, but it is Christ's suffering for you which defines you. And then you go, oh my goodness, <laughs> say more. Uh, how is it possible that this is true? And so how does suffering then, if it doesn't define us, how does it direct us? Now, this is genius right here. If you, if you study the Bible, you love the Bible, many of you have read this and studied it and been in studies, but notice how Paul uses creation to draw them in. Uh, when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. Now, we know that creation is not a person. It doesn't really have feelings. It's not real. But Paul is using something here which all of us can connect with and sort of listen to. Because we might not get excited about where he wants to take us, but if he takes us through our understanding of the role of creation in our lives, then all of a sudden, okay, uh, tell me more. It's just kind of, I love the way Paul is using the creation as an illustration of our connection to our God. Because Jesus said, let there be light. He is the creator of the whole world. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He let the stars, I mean, he set the stars in the heaven. Jesus speaks right now, and all of creation hangs on the word that he speaks. It all depends on him as our creator. Now, uh, one of the adventures that Valerie and I have been on, Valerie is my wife, for those of you who haven't met Valerie, she's right here, is that uh, at some point now, if I get to choose where I go on vacation, I have one place I want to go every time, all the time, I don't need any other arguments. I don't need any other pleas. It is enough that the beach is for me, you know. I love the beach. I love the ocean. 
That's where I would go all the time, every time, same place, all the time. That's where I want to be. Valerie is the adventurer. Valerie is the one that says, hey, let's explore. Let's go visit all the national parks. Let's go see the national parks. Now, again, uh, and you know, my reflex to that is not to be excited, but like, I don't know. You know, I, don't, I, have, I can't, it's just hard for me to get excited about it. When you say national parks, that sounds like Sunday school. No offense. But it's like, you know, it's like, oh, really? I have to go to Sunday school? You know, I, I know where the place of worship is. It's right there on the coast. And um, so, but, uh, you know, so Valerie encouraged me. And we have started on this journey of visiting as many national parks as we can go to. Now, I can tell you uh, that we've been to some spectacular places, but let's pick one nearby that all of you can get to, and that's to go to Acadia uh, National Park. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Cadillac Mountain, get up on the top of there and look, to look into Canada, look across the water there. But to stand on these amazing rock cliffs and there are these warnings of don't get too close because waves come up and pull you can pull you over. But there's a beauty to Acadia that just because I'm made in the image of God, I know who God is in generically, but when you get out in creation, something begins to happen to you. You connect to the fact that there is a God. Now, you might run away from it. You might deny it. But there's something about the order and beauty of creation that pulls you in. The other place that if I was going to say, if you could go to one national park, go to Glacier National Park in Montana. Uh, I got asked to go to do a renewal of a couple's vows um, in Montana. And they invited Valerie and I to come, and it was near Glacier National Park. And of course, Valerie said, let's go to Glacier. <laughs> okay. You know, I, my expectations were so small that it would be, you know, it's just the mountains and some flowers and some glaciers. Okay. Um, but, oh my goodness, of all the places that I've ever been that physically creation has overwhelmed me, even more than the beach, it's Glacier National Park. So please go if you can. Um, but notice what Paul's doing here, because he's talking about, and again, Creation is not personal. He's just saying there is a reality to creation that's connected to us. Now notice the way he uses language to draw us in. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing, that's deep desire, for the revealing of the sons of God, because creation is connected to us. And another thing, if you've never studied this or understood it, as the world as we see it now will be renewed, will be made new, and everything that we see in Acadia Glacier and on the coast of the Outer Banks of North Carolina is going to be renewed and marvelous, and we're going to dwell there, and we're going to get to see a new heaven and a new earth. And creation is made to be connected to people who love God completely because they've been set free or have been created to know that, much like the Garden of Eden, the creation is made to be nurtured and cared for by people like us. And a little sidebar here real, real quickly. If anybody should be concerned about it, it's the environment, it's Christians. Because God made the world. He made it. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But Paul's kind of trying to draw, again, the skeptical, the Roman church, the people in Rome, 
to say, uh, maybe your suffering seems over overwhelming. Nero is killing Christians. Things are difficult. There's sickness everywhere. You're third class as a citizen in Rome if you identify as a Christian. Suffering is everywhere. And when you're around a lot of suffering, that's all that you can see. That's your vision. This is what defines me. How hard and difficult things are for me or my family or my friends or our country. I mean, you don't have to go very far. And you see it and you experience it. But what is the vision that God wants to give us in the midst of suffering? Well, he's unpacking it here when he says, for the creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjects it in hope. Um, back in, <clears throat> I have to kind of think of where I am chronologically, but in the late 70s, um, when Bauer and I were in Philadelphia, I'm attending seminary, uh, I got to know a man who was a professor at McCurry University in Kampala, and uh, he had to flee on a minute's notice with his wife. They had to flee and leave Uganda, flee into Kenya because of the reign of Idi Amin. And Amin was not only killing people, he was destroying the land and the rivers. And he was polluting the rivers out of his madness. And I just remember, I can always remember my friend Kefa teaching from this passage and getting right to this little phrase here, in hope. Because he had hope that God was going to show up and rescue Uganda. He knew that there was a presence and a power that comes from God that doesn't say that suffering has the last word, that it will end there. And I just remember him telling a group of us how much he was hanging on, right that little phrase right there, in hope. So think about whatever you're going through in suffering right now, and difficulty, and challenging what might be going on is something that's going to draw you to what we see here is what does it mean to have hope? Real hope in the midst of devastating, disappointing, frustrating, alienating circumstances that say, God, where are you? What is in the world is going on? Notice how, uh, again, God, if creation's groaning, it's okay to groan, <laughs> you know? It's okay to groan. It's okay to sigh. One commentator says that when you begin to understand this passage, he says you will hear a symphony of sighs. Many um, of you love the symphony, love the music, but just to hear a group of people sighing together over the sadness and the suffering that they're in and what is happening to us. It's okay to admit how painful it is. It's okay to admit to one another that we are groaning under our struggles with what we're dealing with, uh, what we're up against. The worst mistake we can make is to suffer in silence and not be open to that. But again, God's trying to draw us in because listen to what he says. But not only our creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, what does that mean? It means love, joy, peace. We have a way of connecting with spiritual reality in the midst of darkness, in the midst of disconnection, in the um, presence of just fractured reality where we're trying to figure out which end is up. 
The light is shining into our darkness in a way that Paul says we have the first fruit of the spirits grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now again, if you just kind of track with where Paul's saying creation is groaning, you can groan, but as creation is waiting for you to become released into this future glory of what will be the new heavens and earth, you can let that define you so that you can live in the present now in a way that shapes who you are because then suffering directs you. It directs you. And so uh, <clears throat> Luther was famous for saying, you need to live today in light of that day. When they asked Luther, if you knew you were going to die today and God would come, no, if you knew God was going to come back this week, what would you do? And he said, I would plant a tree. Now here's this great preacher of the gospel. Because he knew about the new heaven and earth, he was already tied into that reality. Now this is so hard for us because we're so bound up in the here and now and the present. We are so in tune with our longing for the fulfillment of our ambition, the approval of others, our body image, our financial security, our political security, everything that we are saying, this is what defines me, that if I can get this, if I can have this, or I can see this happen, or learn, figure out how to get through it, that's what defines me. And what God says, no, what defines you is the one who has died for you to give you a hope in the future glory of what is to be revealed so that hope comes ricocheted back to you in the present so that your life is radical. <laughs> you're revolutionized. You're transformed by the radical love of God revealed in the hope of the gospel. If we go back to Romans 5, here's what Paul says. We rejoice in our suffering. The Bible, the gospel, directs you to learn how to find joy in the midst of your suffering. Um, I'm always moved when I sing Be Still My Soul because I remember being in a previous church where we served, standing next to a mother and father whose daughter was killed in a car accident. And we're singing that together. And I had walked them through the grief and sadness of losing the apple of their eye in a tragic car accident. And to sit you know, just be standing next to Lori and Ray as they lifted their hands and saying, be still, my soul. Wow. <laughs> um, it, you know, friends, if you want to know what difference does Jesus make, it moves you, it helps you to worship and to rejoice in your suffering, not because of the suffering, but because the one who has suffered for you, who is suffering for you even now. So you don't, no longer feel a slave to the approval of others, but you live in the joy of his approval of you because he's lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And oh my goodness, does it set you free. In Hebrews 11, Paul says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Real faith has hope in it that has a future and a present to it. But you have to anchor yourself in the future of what is to come. That's what Paul's trying to say. Get anchored there and then come back. Uh, get anchored there and then come back. Um, 
This past week, I had a chance to go down to the South Shore uh, to uh, the Cranberry Fields, the Cranberry Shore, uh, and spent some time with uh, a fellow who started a church out of the leadership and faithfulness of Christ the King here. He's down in Pembroke, that area around there. Uh, and uh, Troy Albee is his name with his family, his uh, three or four kids. Um, but he just drove me all around that part of Massachusetts. I'd never been there, I'd never seen it. Uh, and it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, I was just, I mean, a beautiful part of the country, the history that's there. He told me about this TV show called Houses That Have History, which is on the HGTV thing. Valerie and I have watched some of that about people who renovate houses there that were built in the 1700s in Massachusetts. Um, but we went to Situate, and if you've been there, we went and we drove and we got right on the edge where we could see the lighthouse, we could see the beauty of that bay right there, all these fishermen going out, coming in, and uh, we had a beautiful meal right there. We had some chowder uh, right there, you know, and, uh, but I was just sitting there, I said, man, what a beautiful part of the world. So I go home that night, I'm watching the news while Valerie's making dinner, and there's a story about a woman who's at work. She had stayed home to work. She lives up on a hill overlooking this bay. She sees a ship out in distress, a ship out in distress. She sees smoke come up, and she sees the ship sink. She immediately calls 911, and uh, within 45 minutes, people are there to rescue three fishermen who were in the sea, freezing to death. And if you watch the news thing, one of the men talks about, you know, the reporter's saying, what were you thinking? He's in the hospital. He's like, I said, I thought about, am I, am I going to see my family again? Now, again, here I am. I see the creation, if you will, but then I see a redemptive story because this woman was stayed home from work, sees this ship sinking, calls 911. These three fishermen are saved. Um, is your ship sinking today? Uh, is the smoke coming up from your heart and your mind because you're so bitter, resentful, sad, disillusioned? God has his eye on you, and his 911 is John 3.16, for God so loved you that he gave his son, his only son, to suffer and die in your place. And you know what? It doesn't take 45 minutes for him to show up. <laughs> If today you will say, Jesus, help me, rescue me, save me, deliver me from the approval of the world, the approval of others, deliver me from feeling like I have to have a certain body image to feel good about myself, or I need a certain amount of money, or I need da 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 you, whatever you fill in the blank, but let what you did for me on the cross define me. Oh, my friend, you can walk out of here so different. Because it's not what you've done, it's what's been done for you. And that's what Romans 8 is, just, oh, it's bringing it, it's bringing it, it's bringing it. Um, <clears throat> good friend of mine who went to Harvard, he and I actually went to seminary together, first year together, 1975. Uh, his name is David Pallison. He's written a tremendous book on grace and suffering. And I'm just going to read you a little bit of what he has here because when you begin to understand how suffering directs us, 
to this future glory so that we can live in this present broken world and love people with the love that we've received. Listen to how David talks about it in a way that hopefully you'll say, oh, it makes sense. This is real. <laughs> this is helpful. Uh, <clears throat> because David writes, whenever you start suffering, hear the questions you ask. Why me? Why this? Why now? Why? Um, David writes, God comes for you in the flesh and Christ into suffering on your behalf. He does not offer advice and perspective from afar. He steps into your significant suffering. It's personal to God that you're suffering. He takes it personally that you're hurting the way you are hurting. He will see you through. He will work with you the whole way. He will carry you even in extremis. This reality changes the questions that rise up in, from your heart. That inward turning, why me, quiets down. See, when God's helping you move past the why me, listen to what he says. It lifts its eyes and begins to look around. You turn outward and a new wonderful questions form. Why you? Why you? Now he's referring to why you, God. Why would you enter into this world of evils? Why would you go through loss, weakness, hardship, sorrow, and death? Why would you do this for me of all people? But you did. You did this for the joy set before you. You did this for love. God's 911, John 3.16. Okay, you did this for love. You did this showing the glory of God in the face of Christ. As that deeper question sinks home, listen to this little phrase. This will help you. What do I want to take away today uh, from the message? David says that when you begin to understand Christ's role through and in our suffering, the way he suffered for us, suffers with us, and is able to redeem our suffering, Listen to this little phrase. He says, you become joyously sane. (laughs) Wow. You're not crazy. (laughs) You're not going to go crazy. Because when you begin to identify with what defines you as, as his suffering for you, you will have a joyful sanity about you. That, oh my goodness, what a gift. Um... The question generates a heartfelt response. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Thank you, my Father. You're able to give true voice to and thank you amid all that is truly wrong, both the sins and sufferings that now have come under loving kindness. You're finally prepared to pose and to mean almost unimaginable questions. Why not me? So here's the goal of Romans 8, is to get you to move from suffering doesn't define me, it directs me, It directs me to Christ, and then it helps me to get to this place. Why not me? If we could have met with Helen Keller's mother when her daughter went blind, and people are saying, why don't you institutionalize her? Um, You know, why don't you give up on her? But she got help for her daughter. Uh, You know, God, that's a picture of God's love for us. He does not give up on us. And then he uses us to show people that he does not give up on them. If in some way my faith, this is David writing, might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, then why not me? If my suffering shows forth the Savior of the world, why not me? If I have the privilege of filling up the sufferings of Christ, if he sanctifies to me my deepest distress, If I fear no evil, if he bears me in his arms, if my weakness demonstrates the power of God to save us from all that is wrong, 
if my honest struggle shows other strugglers how to land on their feet, if my life becomes a source of hope for others, why not me? Why not me? Jesus, uh, when he walked on this earth, he learned to trust God through the midst of its suffering. It says he cried out to God with loud tears, and he was heard because he was trusting God. He was heard and learned how to trust the care and the sovereign goodness of his Father so that he would not only redeem his creation, but he would redeem us. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful for this call out of the quicksand of this world to say we just feel so defeated or discouraged or just just totally perplexed by how hard and difficult life is. Lord, again, anchor us to the glory that is to be revealed when we will live in a new heaven and earth, when we will walk in Glacier National Park and just marvel at how glorious it was meant to be, or be at Acadia, or be in Yellowstone, or be in different parts of the world where the majesty of your creation will be on full display. Uh, But Lord, we thank you that on a cross, on a lonely hill, on a mountain that Jesus scaled for us, he came and loved us, and saved us, and rescued us. And we pray it now, Jesus, you'd help us to come to the table with hearts that are ready to receive your goodness and mercy. Amen.